0: Alive and kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk.
1: Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com, or you'll find me on Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, have you got a bright idea? I'm going to be meeting two psychologists turned social entrepreneurs who want to help ease the transition into parenthood. How many ultra-processed foods are in your life? Nutritionist Rob Hobson will be telling you what to look out for, and therapist Fiona Brennan takes a listener email on fighting in a relationship. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I've had a good week. The kids were on midterm break. We would the whole week off. So we went to Donegal for a few days, stayed in a hotel, swam in the pool, potted around the buffet breakfast, walked Rossinola Beach, and I didn't have to think of normal things in life. I'm actually starting to worry that I'm not able to do life without lots of breaks. I mean... I know that's a very good privileged position to be in, but does that mean I'm not coping or that I'm learning to live my best life? I mean, who knows? But it was just nice to do things like sleep until I woke up rather than have the alarm burst into my life. Um, To not have to think about cooking, to spend time walking in the woods with my little girl to go from hot to cold in the spa area. I mean, look, there are elements of that that I can include in my day-to-day life, but it just seems more tricky when life is so jam-packed. So I really leaned into the midterm break myself. And life is quite heavy at the moment, I think. Many of us are starting to carry the weight of the world of our shoulders, to literally watch and feel the sadness of those less fortunate than ourselves. But I do think that perhaps for the first time we are beginning to think that we can be part of change that we do have a responsibility to speak out for what we feel isn't right we're not othering as much anymore we're we're seeing things that are going on in the world as the same as us rather than away from us doesn't make it any less heavy but i do feel it's a new and better energy for us all and i hope that you are doing okay And I'd like to mention that I'm hosting a wellness day for Purple House Cancer Support Centre, which is a gorgeous charity in Bray County, Wicklow. I did visit it last year and you might remember the interview I played out, but there's also a video on my Instagram. But it is a lovely big house with all the rooms given over as space for support for people going through cancer and their loved ones, from a play area for the kids to relax and also work with therapists, to a gym for those in recovery and treatment, to just rooms where people can meet and drink coffee and talk not about cancer for a change or if they want to. It's a really lovely place and I know there are so many special places like this up and down the country run by amazing people. So Purple House... Cancer support are having their wellness day on March 3rd in Paris Courthouse with speakers that include Jerry Hussey, Mark Fennell, dietitian Sarah Kyo, and there'll be yoga with Daniela Moyles as well as plenty of other workshops and lunch. It was such a fab day last year. so grab a pal, a couple of tickets treat yourself to a gorgeous Sunday for a brilliant cause and for more, you can go to purplehouse.ie you can also email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com. Now, Social Entrepreneurs Ireland launched its annual call for applications for its Ideas Academy on February 13th. People with a visionary idea to solve a social or an environmental problem are urged to step forward and apply for a place on the three-month programme to help make their vision into a reality. Tess O'Leary and Barbara Fee are graduates of Social Entrepreneurs Ireland Ideas Academy, class of 2023, and they join me in studio now. Well, you're both very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. How does it feel to be at that stage? Because at one point in time, it must have just been a conversation and then it became something more concrete. And now we'll get into Nurture Network now in a moment. Now it's a reality. How does it feel to be at this point of the project?
2: Um, quite frightening, really, because <laughs> now we have to sort of do it on our own and and kind of make a go of it. So yeah it's it's we're taking all that learning and it was great to have that supportive network of people around us and checking in and learning the different skills about becoming a social entrepreneur it's it's new for Tess and I to do this Um, So, yeah, we're we're slowly trying to embrace that new identity. Yes, and quiet down that imposter syndrome. (laughs) Tell us
1: about Nurture Network then, Tess.
3: Yeah, so Nurture Network is, it's a social enterprise that, yeah, myself and Barbara founded um, last year. And Nurture Network really, we aim to support expectant and new parents on that journey into parenthood and to give them some tools and support to be able to really I suppose, nurture their well-being and the well-being of their baby during that process. Um, So Nurture Network really came from, I suppose, our personal experience as mothers and also our professional experience as clinical psychologists. We met on training and we were both on placement with a perinatal mental health team. And that's really, I suppose, where we had an opportunity to reflect on our own experience of becoming mothers in the context of supporting other parents and maybe what might have been helpful to us at that time. So...
1: And before we went live here we were we were chatting and I was saying you know about my experience becoming a mum for the first time I felt like there was a lot of information out there you kind of get what to expect when you're expecting and all these books and whatever goes on at your at your antenatal classes or whatever is offered in your local community but Both of you have sort of said that's very much based on the individual experience. Some people get it, some people don't. Some people have access to go to different community classes in their area. Some don't. So you're really trying to just streamline it, Barbara.
2: Well, we're trying to, I suppose, um, have parents reflect a little bit on the fact that this is a transition. It's a change in your identity. Um, So it might not be necessarily what to do in terms of feeding and, you know, taking care of baby, which I think you get a lot of that part of it, but more that sort of how do I cope when I can't problem solve my way through something? Or how do I cope when I don't get a lot of sleep um, and I'm feeling frustrated and I don't like that emotion and I don't know what to do with it? So it's it's that sense of, I suppose, thinking about that. I sp- for me, that's what happened. I was like, when things go back to normal, <laughs> I'll do whatever. And then one day I sat down and I was like it's not going back to normal. This is it. This is the new me. And I felt kind of a sense of grief, which felt really weird because obviously I was delighted that I had this gorgeous baby. So I think it's around that. It's that kind of awareness that things are changing and the change is quite big. And sometimes we just assume, oh, we'll roll with it, you know, and maybe just taking a moment to think about when things get tough, how are we? And is there anything we could do to help ourselves with that transition? I
1: completely identify with that. And I think it's to do with pregnancy. I think you say when I get back to myself, because obviously you're going through so many physical and emotional and psychological changes. And you think once the baby comes back, I'll get back to the person I was before with a baby. But you are a completely new person in lots of good ways. But that takes a a lot of getting used to. And I think it's the same for your partner, because they go through a lot and we don't really talk about that either. When I think about how I started to speak to my husband in, in uh, there's a male partner in my situation, you know, all of a sudden I became the house manager and the expert on this baby and he became this sort of fool who was trying to bumble his way through it. And, you know, these are things that we're not really equipped to deal with properly. And I've started to read a lot of gabar mate recently and he talks about the importance of the first three years in the brain development of that child. So if you as parents are still finding your feet as a couple and as a person, that can have a huge impact on the child. And I say that without blame. It's just we're not having these conversations, are we?
3: No. No, we're not. And and I think um what you said earlier there about the noise and the amount of information that's there. You know, I I had the experience of trying to seek out all that information during pregnancy and trying to equip myself and and, and my partner, you know, we we definitely, my, my husband, Ian, we we really thought that we were organized and prepared for this baby to arrive. And um, because we'd read the books and we'd done everything we were supposed to do. And and in some ways, nothing can prepare you for that shock. But I think, you know, we found it particularly hard. I think it, it, just for context, my baby was born in October 2020. So we were quite isolated anyway because of the, the pandemic. But I think that we hadn't really accounted for that psychological change for that yeah, that shock to our relationship that that would change all of our roles and our responsibilities in the home and things would get turned on its head and our routine would be completely, and obviously you can prepare a little bit for that, but I think we hadn't, I think now on reflection, there are things that we could have done to maybe prepare ourselves a little bit more or to seek out that kind of support that might have been available to us you know, COVID withstanding, um, you know, what would have supported us a little bit
1: better in that transition? Because it was hard. It yeah. was really hard. Because you kind of get yourself prepared, don't you? You mean, you get the cot, you get the buggy. I mean, you mm-hmm. spend more time talking about what buggy you're going to get than you do about what kind of parents are you going to be? How are you going to manage sleep deprivation? How do you feel about rocking our child to sleep? All these things that end up coming up. When you're exhausted, that's when you decide to talk about it. So what will these online resources reflect then? How, how will they help parents?
2: Well, I suppose our goal is at the moment, we've got a few resources up. We're working our way through kind of developing different pieces. We've got like bonding with your bump, bonding with baby, um, up already. We have something, I think, around matrescence up there as well. But I suppose it's kind of having information is a starting point, you know, because we, we don't know what people are going to experience or what they'll pick up from what we say. So making information available is something as we went through SEI, we realized the Ideas Academy, we realized that was our goal if if we give information and everybody has kind of a standard foundation to kind of go from, that that would be what we would hope and aspire to. And again, because we're thinking of that little baby who's also in a transition, has come into the world and it's bright and noisy and I've got all these weird feelings in my body and I don't know what that is and it's I'm scared. You know, we, we want the parents to be able to respond to that. Um, so I suppose, we're, going, we're starting with the guides. We're hoping to have a kind of a pregnancy workshop, standalone kind of workshop, and then a postpartum one. And the end goal would be that kind of four to six week bridging type um, course that would bring parents through that sort of late stage pregnancy and then meet up again for like meeting me 2.0, you know, what I'm like now that I've, I've, you know, here's baby, what now? And this is where, where I find myself. Um, so that's our long-term goal. But at the moment, we're slowly populating the website. So uh, we hope that people can feel they get reliable information um, that they can kind of put into the mix of all that noise.
1: Yeah, knowledge is power, isn't it? But then so is peer support, because even being able to identify with what Barbara said about going, oh, God, I'm never going back to her. And that grief process in all psychological experience, realising that we're not alone, that everybody goes through it. Because I think with a baby, you kind of see people wheeling this baby down the road and it looks like everybody is just living the dream. And this is amazing. And you're the only one who's making a mess of that. And I think we can feel that in all times of of life. Everyone else is killing it in life. And I'm, I'm a mess. How important is that shared experience? It's hugely important. And I think that's really, we are, as Barbara said,
3: that's our long term goal is that we will be able to connect parents before they reach a point where it might be more difficult for them or logistically or they might not be in the headspace to get out and meet new people.
2: Part of it is, you know, there's a lot of people in Ireland. Ireland has changed a lot as well. So there's a lot of people who possibly don't have that support network around them. You know, they're parenting somewhere really far away. Their parents can't come over and help them through. I was very lucky. My parents were in the house cooking the meals for me and I struggled, you know. Um, So there's a whole cohort who are on their own, who don't have family or who don't maybe have friendships because they've just come here as well. And they're trying to forge all of that at a time of huge transition and overwhelming emotions and lack of sleep. So if we put that in place for them in this kind of contrived way with a bit of psychoeducation and little coffee mornings then they have somebody to text at 2am when they're sitting on their own going am I the only person awake in the whole world?
1: Yeah it's so true I mean we say it takes a village and yet we don't often have the village there or let the village in so it's a way of creating that sense of community that's so important How are you going to manage the conflicting advice? Is there going to be conflicting advice? Because that's something that I found quite difficult as a new parent if I went on to say you know, breastfeeding versus bottle feeding. There was, you know, a strong argument for both. And I know that's still a fact. Um, But how do you make sure that people make an informed decision for themselves and do what is right for them? With anything, it was the same with baby led weaning. I was like, am I going to puree foods or am I going to just hand them a piece of potato? And, you know, again, people were saying, no, this is all wrong. And then other people were saying, yes, you're the best parent if you do this. How do you drown out that noise and make sure people are empowered to make the right decision for them.
2: I think that's kind of the guide with those skills as well that we would hope to be doing. You know, it's trusting yourself and that starts with kind of being able to tune in. First of all, what am I thinking? Because when we're in that place of fight or flight or emotional overwhelm, we're going to our go-to, <laughs> you know, emotional highway. What do I do when I'm just in this place where my my frontal cortex is no longer available? And what we're hoping is that parents will have some skills that can go, OK, hang on a second. Let me think about that. What do I want? I know I read some books where I went, oh, my God, he should have been in a routine by three weeks. And I haven't done that. I'm terrible. I'm just, you know, really bad at this. And then I went, okay, like this is just too hard. So I'm just going to (laughs) ignore all of this. I'm going to be an ostrich and I'm just going to wing it and see where I go, you know. And it definitely took time to get to that place. And that was really stressful. So it would have been nice to maybe settle into that a bit quicker. Mm. Um, So I suppose where it's always going to be tricky. It's always going to be hard. There will be times where that emotion will take you off and you'll be scrolling all night. But I suppose we're hoping that we're going to equip parents to feel like they can pause and go, Do you know, this is really hard. And maybe I don't need to decide this right now. Maybe I can just take a few minutes Mm. and think about it and then choose. And then we're more likely to go with what our gut tells us is right for us and our family. You know, there is no right. I suppose all that contradictory information is because there is no right answer. It's you and this baby. And, you know, it's a unique partnership, and I do always look back on
1: all stages
2: and think, I wish I
1: just enjoyed that more. I wish I hadn't stressed and doubted myself. But maybe that's with rose tinted glasses. I mean, there are times where it is just really hard. So it's going to feel hard. And I think it's, it's right for us to acknowledge that and start talking about that a little bit more. So if there's somebody who's listening now, Tess, who's, you know, expecting whether they're the pregnant one or not, how do you prepare yourself psychologically? I
3: think it would be kind of what you've just said there, I'd echo that it is, it has some really wonderful, incredible moments. And that's also going to be coupled with really hard moments where you're going to have to dig deep to be able to kind of surrender yourself to what's happening and to, to get through it. And that there are, it can be both. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And we often get kind of portrayals of parenthood that look really rosy and wonderful. And we compare ourselves to that. Um, but it's never that black and white, and it's never that clear cut. There is a lot of grey area there, and I suppose making space for that, making space for the discomfort of it not being necessarily what we expected, or or not being what we we thought it would look like.
1: So I think just yeah, allowing for it to be both um, is is really really important. And I suppose it's the open communication, isn't it? The the conversations. Because like I said, we didn't really have those conversations. We decided, are we going to have a co-sleeper beside the bed or a Moses basket? Are we going to get this buggy or that buggy? But we didn't really talk about where do you stand on discipline? Who's going to do the night feeds? We just sort of muddled our way through that and resentment and conflict built up. But we'd never had that conversation. And I often quote on this show, the podcast, Maybe Baby, where a couple were deciding whether or not they'd have a baby And this this comedian, anyway, came on and he was saying, have those conversations. And it was like a light bulb moment for me. And I had probably a three and a five year old at the time. It was too late. But it's have those
2: conversations, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, before you get married here, if you want to get married in a church, you have those sessions where you have to talk about finances and how do we how do we navigate those kind of difficult areas in marriage, but we don't really do the same around parenting and kind of coming together and thinking about like, oh, well what are you imagining when this child comes into the world? But it's even have those conversations about how you're feeling. I think as psychologists, you know, it was tough, but we're used to checking in maybe a little bit more and saying, am I doing okay? Like is this is this all right or do I need to reach out to somebody? Do I need to talk to somebody? Um, and often it's just about getting reassurance, you know, and, and saying, this is something that's been going on for me. Is that OK? Or do you think that's kind of normal? Um, so have those conversations with each other and kind of what 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 do I do when I'm overwhelmed and what what do you do to help me? Or how can I ask you to help me? But also with other people in your life, being able to say, you know, this I'm struggling and I don't know. Is this something I need to be worried about or not? Talk to your your public health nurse. That's what she's there for. It's you know, it's never bad to bring your baby to an A&E if you're worried and it's never bad to talk to your public health nurse or GP if you've got any concerns about yourself, I think. I mean, we're, we want to come in at that preventative level, but there are systems there for when things maybe are quite difficult and you, you need to link in with somebody and having the conversation with everybody around you just makes it easier for people to step in when they need to.
1: Yeah, I think that's why we don't have the conversation because there's this sort of social messaging that this is the most natural thing in the world and it's just going to be all amazing Um, and I love that you're breaking that down. So where can people access this information now, Tess? So our website is nurturenetwork.ie, um, and as Barbara said,
3: we're we're currently kind of populating it with some free online resources. So we have some downloadable guides. We're going to be running a couple of workshops in the spring, and then our hope is to pilot the the kind of antenatal program that will sort of bridge that gap into the postnatal period um, later this year. So watch this space. <laughs> um, but yeah, all of our information is on NurtureNetwork.ie and I think following us on social media is a great opportunity just to to kind of, we have some really accessible information there, some tips for for new parents and also that's where we'll be posting any updates about um, any other
1: supports that we're going to be offering in the next few months. So, Okay, yeah. amazing. So tell me about the experience of working with the Ideas Academy and, and how that helped.
2: Well, I don't think we'd be sitting here with you had we not got onto the Ideas Academy because it was very much the the kind of motivation to Um, start moving on it. We had been speaking about it a good bit and then Tess saw the advertisement for it and so she put in the application for it for the Ideas Academy. She's like well just put it in and we'll see what happens. But then having to be accountable in a way like having to go online and learn the different skills um, and seeing everybody else doing it because I suppose it's not natural for us to be social entrepreneurs. You know we have our day jobs and and then our mummy jobs Um, so this is another layer and a shift for us. Um, So it's nice. It it kind of parallels what we're trying to do for parents in a way. They kind of provide that social community so you don't feel alone on that journey of becoming a social entrepreneur. They're teaching you the skills so that when things get tough or, you know, when there's things that are outside your comfort zone. Tess is our social media person. That is very much not my comfortable area. Um, But it was lovely to have that sort of source of information, social support and accountability in terms of checking in and, and it's kind of quite similar to what we're hoping our thing will be for, for parents.
1: Yeah, amazing. Well, as you've heard, Tess and Barbara are graduates of the Social Entrepreneurs Ireland Ideas Academy class of 2023. The organisation which this year celebrates its 20th anniversary is now seeking visionaries for its Idea Academy class of 2024. So if you've an idea to solve a social or an environmental problem that will make our country a better place and would like support in In that vision to make it a reality, go to socialentrepreneurs.ie forward slash the Ideas Academy and applications close on Tuesday, March 12th. Well, congratulations to you both to take something that you saw. I, I, I really love this to say I want to make a difference. I mean, sometimes we can't change the whole world. We can change our little part of it. It will make a huge difference. I've already asked you. To keep talking about managing older kids, but one step mm-hmm. at a time. <laughs> you've said Rome wasn't built in a, in a day. To both of you, all the best with Nurture Network. To Tess O'Leary and Barbara Fee, thank you so much for coming on. Thank, thank you. you very much. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Therapist and author Fiona Brennan is back to answer one of your dilemmas. Fiona, you're very welcome. Thank you, Claire. Happy to be here. Now, let's get straight into this one because it's, a, it's an interesting one. And me and you have been like emailing back and forth um, about picking it. So I think a lot of couples will relate to this. Hi there, it says. I'm wondering how normal is it for couples to fight? I'm with my husband for 11 years now and we have two small kids. We've always been hotheads and can go from having a blazing row to back on track easily. But now with two kids watching on, we've had to rein that in. We still seem to bicker all the time, though, and then have a couple of blowouts a month. My question is, is it normal or are we incompatible? When I meet up with my other girlfriends, there's often venting about the husband. So, is everyone fighting? And we've been given the wrong idea from rom-coms and TV dramas. I still love my husband and I would say I'm in a happy marriage. But I'm curious, how much fighting is too much fighting? Now, Fiona, you are obviously a very non-judgmental person. You are, you know, in clinic all the time as a therapist. So, you've heard and seen it all and come to it with a place of compassion. But you were surprised by this situation and that kind of spoke volumes to me about your relationship. I've seen you and, and Kieran yeah. in action. So are you not the kind of person who, who fights often?
0: Well, Claire, I think it's... Re- thank God that you call that non-judgmental piece because I think that's the most important here and to bring compassion to it. So I am someone... I suppose who understands what it's like to be that person in my earlier uh, relationship with Kieran we're married nearly 20 or it is actually 20 years this year so I certainly remember in our uh, more tempestuous youth let's say there would have been a lot a lot of arguments back and forth and those big blowouts and um, that this lovely listener refers to and I know how sort of debilitating they can be in terms of not just on the relationship but on the individual in terms of the stress and the anxiety that they bring and also in a sort of almost paradox that they're they're quite addictive in in a sense and because there's that drama there's that release there's that sense of almost like in a kind of perverse is too strong a word but a sense of enjoyment in the arguments and um, because also then the, the making up, and I think that's what this listener is referring to as well, that they would always get back on track uh, quite quickly, which is good. So I understand it. I'm a long way from that. And to be honest, you know, without sounding like Miss Perfect, I, I would say it's very rare that we would argue at all, maybe once a year there might be a. A blowout, as you call it, or, you know, something like that. And I think it's a much calmer, happier, more contented relationship. And I think that comes, to be honest, Claire, with with maturity and age anyway, to be honest.
1: But I'm really glad to hear you say that, because when I sent this one on to you um, and said, you know, what do you think about us discussing this this month? You know, you said, God, that sounds like a really tough situation to be in and I thought God you know she's never been in it so like to know that you have been in it in your current relationship because I can identify with it too you know of course and same we're 19 years together and back in the early days this this was the reality for me as well and we would think nothing of shouting and roaring through the house and then when he'd be going to leave for work he'd say bye love and I'd say bye love and we wouldn't it wouldn't matter at all so I mean, I, I do want to sort of say to the listener that it can happen in all relationships, but I, I suppose what I'm hearing from you and, and where we're both at now, there has to be an onus to want to move on from this in a yes, way. Yes,
0: exactly. I think so. And and to go straight to the heart of like her, the question is, are we incompatible? I would say absolutely that is not the case by the sounds of this. It sounds like there's deep love and happiness and joy in this uh, marriage or relationship. So I would say that... Um, to keep that at the forefront of of your mind, that this is worth, ironically, fighting for. But fighting <laughs> with peace, fighting fighting with compassion and fighting with mindfulness. So what this relationship really needs in all relationships, whether it's your husband, your sister, your uh, partner, whoever it might be, is that mindfulness component where you it's natural and normal to feel irritated or angry or upset these are really understandable emotions that we all feel especially in a relationship where there's a lot of responsibility you know in terms of bringing up children in terms of running a house making decisions finances it's really understandable that there's going to be emotions that are difficult and challenging and you might have different perspectives you might you know you might see something one way and your partner will see it a completely different way so how do you navigate that well most many people and this is why this this listener is not alone is that they will maybe suppress it at the time you know just because they need to get on with their day and then it will come out in terms of a a kind of um volcanic you know blowout where the frustration has built up and hasn't been dealt with let's say so when we bring mindfulness out practices to the relationship it transforms the communication and this is really about communication it's also about the children I think that we've got to be so aware of the impact of arguing bickering even bickering now it doesn't have to be a big dramatic row but this constant back and forth of bickering is a concern to be honest with you um, because that has an impact on, on children. They they pick up on that, even when you're trying to hide it or push it down, that they know. And I think that's, you know, where many people start to, like this listener, start to question that that how they're communicating because they see the impact it has on their lovely children. And, and, and that is something they don't want to, to pass down the line, if you like. So I'm so glad that this uh, listener wrote in because... What you want to do and what's very possible, I mean, we're we're testaments to it ourselves, is that you can transform that and you can learn to really communicate so much more effectively, so much more mindfully and to express how you feel without those blowouts, without um, the constant bickering. Because that is, as I said, damaging. And there's a really solid piece of research around this um, conducted by relationship researcher John Gottman, And he's been studying this for many, many years. And he's got this ratio, which I think is really helpful to keep in, in our minds. And it's basically, in terms of our interaction with our partners, if we have five positive ones, right, to every one negative, that's where we need to be to be in a healthy, stable relationship. So that it just shows you in terms of those little slides, the eyes up to heaven, you know, those kind of um moments wear us down. They they make us tired, they take the joy out of the relationship. So we need to be very aware of this in terms of if there is a negative moment, and of course there's going to be, we're not talking about perfection, and there's going to be irritation, there's going to be frustration but what you want to do then is really mindfully and consciously start to bring in the positive, you know, so that you you counterbalance that and it just shows you like five to one. It, it illuminates just how much positive we need in our relationships to make them places of of joy and bonding and love, which is ultimately what what we all want, you know, is to enjoy them, to feel safe, to have fun, to have intimacy, to have all of these wonderful things.
1: And to have a support system there. But I think sometimes we place a lot of responsibility on our significant others to give us all our strength and happiness. And it sounds like a cliche to say we can only find that within ourselves. But for years, I used to kind of offload dissatisfaction in my life as being my husband's responsibility or a lot of it might have been his fault. But when I flipped it a little bit and started to say, well, what is this bringing up for me? Why am I angry here? And sometimes it was that I wasn't feeling seen and heard and that meant a bit more of a conversation. I found the research around the love languages, the five love languages to be really illuminating because somebody might be really looking for affection in a relationship, whereas another person, that's not important for them. They're interested in communication. So even understanding where you both come from that maybe they're not reacting to situations the way you would there isn't a right or wrong and kind of finding a a balance in there so they were things that I certainly found that obviously took years (laughs) um and some more maturity but they were like perspective shifts that I found made a big difference because I think if you're shouting your needs aren't being met so how do you find out what your needs are in the first place
0: yeah that's really um helpful I think as well to to highlight that we do transfer our own frustrations onto the nearest and dearest you know you see children do this with parents and you see uh, partners do it with, with one another and that's because there's a sense of the relationship is solid enough that there's that safety. Um, but at the same time, it's not a habit you really want to to get into. So there are some really good practices that I think are just very helpful, mindful practices. Um, and the first one is, like, let's say you, as you said, you, you need to look at your needs not being met, right? And that's a very important thing in terms of being able to express those needs without the intensity of the emotion. So if you're reacting to anger in the moment, it can it can bring a kind of like temporary relief. It feels kind of like, because it's such an intense emotion to carry so that when you re- release it in that sense, it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's a relief, but it's very temporary and it tends to come back. So it's not actually really, Dealing with it, it's just releasing it and reacting to it. So when those kind of emotions come up, we need to actually dig deeper and we need to be with them. We need to stay with them ourselves. It's absolutely right that that it is our, it's 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 a one, a one-man or one-woman show in terms of that you're going inwards towards yourself, that you do need to be able to soothe yourself, to love yourself enough that you can hold that anger rather than just release it on to your partner. That takes a lot of practice, it takes a lot of skill, but it is definitely, definitely 100% uh, possible and worth it um, because you realise that it's not so terrifying, that your own anger is something that you can hold like you would a child. You embrace it, you breathe into it and then slowly it starts to soften. So you really want to wait until you're calmer, until you start to to actually have a conversation about those needs being met. Otherwise, it's just going to be too charged with emotion, too charged with um. Reactivity. So there are practices, and I think they're really good. And that there's one, it's called There's a Cake in the Freezer, right? Now, this sounds mm, awful. <laughs>
1: okay. Wall. We'll stick with you.
0: Yeah. Okay. So let's say, like, you're aware that tensions are rising, right? There's a sense of like frustration building. Maybe your partner said they were going to do something, they didn't do it, then they happened again. And, you know, so the frustration and the irritation is starting to build and that kind of energy is 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 heading towards a blowout, if you like. What you want to do is intervene there in a really non-judgmental way. So this phrase, there's a cake in the, fr- in the freezer, right? Is a way of saying let's just pause here. It's a way of saying it's not your fault, it's not my fault, but I can see that things are starting to build. And ultimately, it's a mindfulness practice that says, let's pause. There doesn't actually have to be a physical cake in the freezer. Maybe there is a physical cake in the freezer. Great. But it means that we're going to stop. We're going to put on the kettle. We're going to have a cup of tea. We're going to have something nice. Maybe it's just a piece of toast. Doesn't have to be a cake. But it's a sense of actually intervening in a way that doesn't, escalate. We're trying to avoid these kind of escalations. Because again, when there are children in the house, then that's going to have an impact on them. And I think that it's not just whether you have children or not. You've got to have that respect for yourself. So yes, it's going to damage the children, but it's also going to damage you. You you know, you feel exhausted. I mean, I remember feeling absolutely exhausted after these arguments. You know, you're drained. And that's so avoidable really you know it's unnecessary suffering there's enough pain and suffering in the world and we don't want to add to it essentially so there's a cake in the freezer is a way of it's like code it's like you were catching agree- yourself yeah and it's it's an agreement that you've made together it's like if one of us call it there's a cake in the freezer that is an agreement already in place it means that we have this almost like way out if you like That is non-judgmental, and that's the part I really like about it. It's not like, oh, you are starting to get really, um, you know, you are really annoying me right now, or you know, there is no blame. It's just like let's just pause and calm things down here. Now, what you want to do is make sure that you don't ignore whatever those issues were because they're only going to raise up again. So we don't. It's not pushing it down. It's not pushing the door in the freezer and saying, you know, I am going to freeze that out. But what you want to do is is never react in the moment of the heat. So. There's another practice, and and this is something actually I think that is really lovely as a weekly practice to do with all the family children, and um, no matter how old they are, you can start to bring them in on on this um, family practice, and essentially it's um, water the seeds and pull the weeds. Okay, so the water the seeds is essentially where you give positive feedback to one another. In what has actually worked well that week in terms of communication, in terms of noticing the good in each other. Like, for example, you know, I love the way you were able to do the dishes without me asking you to. That was just wonderful. Or thanks a million for making me that cup of tea when I was tired. Or so we're we're really um giving positive, specific feedback. And that's like, you know, that just warms your heart when you hear someone you love noticing these things so you're you're watering the seeds of love of compassion of noticing the good in one another i would recommend this listener does that with her husband and the children to bring that in and start that as a practice every week. You know, it can be a Sunday evening, you have a time, we're watering our seeds. And I would do that for quite a while, to be honest with you, before you start to pull the weeds. Because mm. pulling the weeds is a lot more charging, if you like, or you know, has the potential to be more um, uh, jarring. So with pulling the weeds out, there's basically two steps to it. And the first one is that you would look at a situation where you feel, for example, that you didn't meet the person's needs. I feel like I let you down there when I was late for pickup or, you know, I'm sorry about that. So you're taking accountability for your own, um, or I got really stressed there. I'm sorry, work has been very busy at the moment and I just want to highlight that I didn't mean to snap at you. And that just is so, again, like it warms your heart. It's like, Well, thanks for saying that. That's really um, just so helpful, isn't it? Because you're you're being acknowledged, if you like. And so that's the first step of pulling the weeds. And then the other one is where you then, again, mindfully, after a lot of watering seeds, you are able to express how you feel perhaps that you have been maybe disappointed, let down, irritated, angry by saying, well, I feel that you could have maybe helped here a little bit more, or I feel that you know, maybe you don't understand, but that caused me to feel upset. And you express yourself and you do it in a way where the agreement is that you listen without interruption. There's no sense of trying to uh, disagree and say, well,
1: I didn't do that. You know, getting back Mm. into this. You're not trying to reach this point of both saying I 100% agree. You're just like, this is what I need you to hear right now and take it with you and ponder on it a little.
0: Yes, there's no right, there's no yeah. wrong, there is just space to be heard. And even if you feel that the perspective that they, this, you know, your partner has is off the wall, completely opposite to what you think, it's important that you allow that space to be held and just simply listen. Yeah,
1: and you can turn these things around. Like I often find things like bickering, they can become like a habit and you don't even notice you're doing it. Whereas if you go to the more positive, that then becomes a habit and, you know, absolutely, to be constantly put down, it's not very motivating and you may be very much entitled with your complaints about your partner, but it doesn't bring about any change. The more positivity you bring in, the more positivity you get back and it does begin to grow. But I get what you're saying. I think making time to communicate, I think sometimes when we think about date night, we think we have to be, you know, flying off to Paris for this big, romantic, spontaneous night. But if you really gave each other 10 minutes over a cup of tea or walked the block together and spoke in this way about what was working and what wasn't. Yeah. I think over time you'll really start to to oh, feel it. Oh,
0: absolutely. And to take it even a step further, um, Thich Nhat that hand, the Vietnamese Zen Buddhist monk spoke about how we we need to treat our partners as if they were guests in our home. Oh, mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so a sense of really the respect, you know, because When we're in such familiar relationships, we can lose that. We can start to take one another for granted. But if you have even a tenth of that idea in your mind that this is like a guest in my home, can I be really um, respectful, listen, kind, patient? That's that's a that's a home that you want to be part of. That's where you want, you know, that's a a place for children to flourish and to And
1: fun. When you have a guest in your house, you don't just slap on the TV or sit scrolling your phone. You talk to them, you listen to them, you make time for them. Yeah. You, you know, try and entertain them a little. So, yeah, that's not to put all the onus on you, but, you know, just that that mindset. That
0: awareness,
1: Yeah. Brilliant advice as always. If you'd like to send us in a dilemma to look at you can always email aliveandkicking at newstalk.com and to find more on Fiona Brennan you can go to thepositivehabit.com and there you have a Sleep Well quiz because your book Sleep Well is coming out in April so you're letting people assess whether or not they are sleeping well. Are you a well? good
0: sleeper? Yes. And there's a competition if you pre-order the book, which actually really helps authors when people pre-order It's it's really helps to the success of the book, if you like. And um, so, yes, on Instagram, you can uh, enter that competition and you can also do the quiz and just really evaluate and measure your own sleep and your relationship to sleep.
1: Yeah, I think having a good night's sleep would really help you water those seeds a little bit better. It's definitely linked in, Claire. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. Fiona Brennan, thank you so much as ever. Oh, thank you, Claire. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Now, nutritionist Rob Hobson is on a mission to help us unprocess our lives. Convenience has led us to grab food on the go and accept all manner of ingredients in the food we eat, even when we do eat a balanced diet. His book, Unprocess Your Life, breaks down the foods we really need to think twice about before putting them into our trolleys and into our bodies. He joins me on the line now. Rob, you're very welcome. Hello. Good morning. Rob, there is a danger, isn't there, in this topic that we're going to scaremonger people and promote the idea that there are good foods and bad foods. I mean, anyone working in nutrition would surely want a healthy relationship with food and a place for all foods. Did you feel that when you were planning and writing the book?
4: Yeah, I did. And actually, funnily enough, it wasn't something I thought about until I wrote the book. And I totally am on the same page as you. I think that what we don't want with this topic is to start seeing foods as good or bad. And even worse still, what we don't want is to have another version of that clean eating revolution that happened a while back. Because, you know, what's really important is you have a lot of different foods in your diet. And what I'm not saying with this book is to completely give up UPFs because I don't think you even really need to do that. It's all just about cutting back and just trying to unprocess your diet a little bit from where you are at the moment.
1: You mentioned UPS, you're not talking about the delivery company, you're talking about ultra-processed foods. Talk to us about what they are.
4: So ultra-processed foods, you'd recognise them because they're generally manufactured, they can have long ingredient lists and a lot of those ingredients you wouldn't be able to find in your normal kitchen. So we're talking about preservatives, emulsifiers, uh, bulking agents, artificial sweeteners, flavours, all those kind of ingredients – and the reason why all of this came to the forefront is, is there was a lot of research done in this area and they found that while these foods are high in saturated fat, salt and sugar, which we know aren't great for us, when you remove the effect of those on risk factors for chronic diseases, they found there was still a risk for these chronic diseases, suggesting that there was something else in these foods that was causing the problem. And that something else appears to be additives. Um, and and we're still not it's still early days with the research we still don't know which ones are doing what Uh, there's some research around emulsifiers and the gut microbiome but on the whole we know that if you have a high intake of these then they're not great for your health.
1: I know you're not going to necessarily have the answer for this but isn't it crazy that the research is only being done now on the effects on our bodies why were these passed and allowed by policymakers and can to be safe and allowed onto our shelves in the first place?
4: I think that they've all been approved. um, And I think there may be some issues around, obviously, the food industry. We know it's not the... They have to follow guidelines, but there's always a lot of grey area, isn't there? And I think that maybe the research, I mean, maybe the research wasn't even there. You could suggest that it's because the food industry managed to prevent the research from being carried out? I, I don't know. There's other people that have written in more detail about this on that topic. But for me, I think what it, it, the fact that it has occurred is the most important thing. Um, and I think it, maybe it's just slipped under the radar. And like I said, maybe we just, didn't, we just didn't think about it.
1: Can you talk to us a little bit then about the NOVA system?
4: yeah sure so this is how we classify the different foods by their uh, processing so it's a little bit different to to how we do it by nutrition Um, and I can talk a bit bit about that in a minute because it's also why we have this sort of contradiction with certain foods so to start with you have sort of minimally processed foods or unprocessed so these are things in their natural state so you've got fruits vegetables grains nuts meat milk those kind of foods it might involve um just freezing a food that still makes it minimally processed, so peas that have been frozen, um, fruit that's been canned in natural juice that would still be a minimally processed food then you 've got culinary ingredients that are processed, so things like oil, butter, sugar, salt, vinegar, and then you 've got processed foods which are then combining the minimally or unprocessed with maybe oil, sugar, or salt. so this could be a fruit and syrup, um, it could be a freshly made bread, something like that, or even a pasta that's had you know the the wheat and the water and a bit of salt added to it. Then you have ultra-processed foods, which are the ones I've discussed earlier. You know, they're the ones with lots of ingredients and substances that are not normally found when you're cooking. I think one of the problems is this was actually designed to look at dietary patterns, not at individual foods. So there is a bit of debate as to whether some of the foods that would be classed as nutrient-dense ultra-processed foods, like bread, breakfast cereals, yogurts, those kind of foods, You know, we're telling people, if you look on the processing side, to not eat them. But then if you look at what we're telling people nutritionally to do, it's that we're telling them to eat them. So there is always a bit of confusion with that. And I think with those foods, you know, they do have a nutritional benefit. And a lot of people can't afford to eat sourdough bread, for example, or buy it. So if the best you can do is buy your white sliced loaf, and that's all you can afford, and that that is part of your diet, then, then so be it. Do you see what I mean? I think you have to be very realistic when you're trying to Navigate this topic with certain foods.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting in the book you talk about even you know yourself and you're saying right I'm I'm going to have eggs on toast, but maybe the bread that I have is full of additives to give it an extra shelf life. So even when you're trying to do right, they are going to find their way onto your plate and onto your table. But taking the fear out of it, I suppose you're trying to empower people with the information to make choices most of the
4: time yeah absolutely i mean you've got to be really realistic about this what you don't want is people walking around overly paranoid about food you know endlessly scouring ingredient labels or worried that they're giving their kid white bread and somehow that's going to translate into some um awful illness later on in life i think you just need to be really realistic about what you can do and what you practically can't do in terms of the way that you live. And I think bread is just one of those really good examples. Don't get hung up on it if you eat white bread. Just focus on something else that you can change in your diet. Maybe start batch cooking a few homemade dishes that you might have traditionally bought that were UPFs. Do you see what I mean? Or start making a few condiments for yourself or one loaf of bread a week, whatever it is. Just make some small changes to try and sort of tackle this issue.
1: It is interesting, though. There are a couple of items that I might buy um wraps come to mind or um, burger buns and, you know, say there's one left over and we, I don't know why, foolishly, I hate food waste, so we'll put it back in the bread bin and it'll remain there for for three weeks and look the same. (laughs) Whereas we will grumble if you buy a proper loaf that, you know, it's kind of gone hard then the following day, because that's the reality of the situation with, with fresh produce. But when you see a wrap that's been hanging around your bread bin, for five weeks still looking exactly the same you really have to question what's allowing that to look that way and what impact that may have on your
4: health yeah it is a bit scary and if you look at the ingredient list some of them have an astronomical amount of ingredients when actually all you need to make a wrap is flour and water basically and a little bit of salt so i think that yeah i think that that it's important that we maybe think about this issue. And I think that, yeah, if you can start by making some basic pro- bread products yourself, exploring that, that's great. That's a great way to do it. And also, you know, when you talk about food waste, get into sort of freezing food. If I make a loaf of bread, I live on my own. I just cut it all up and then I put it straight in the freezer and then I can take pieces out as I need. Because, I'm, you know, like you, we don't, we don't want to be wasting food. And one of the issues with cooking for fresh all the time, I think people worry that they're going to end up wasting a lot of food that they buy. So it also takes a bit of planning. You know, you need to think ahead if you're going to try and start doing this as to, you know, what you're going to buy, what you're going to batch cook, all that kind of stuff. Because you also don't want it to cost you an absolute fortune to start to start going unprocessed.
1: You are allowed to mention brand names in the book. Certain brand names are mentioned. How did you get around that? I mean, one that comes to mind is you were talking about crisps, for example. So if you have a crisp that's sort of from the the higher end of the market, which is probably going to have a higher price tag, where it is chopped potato cooked in oil with salt or flavouring thrown on the top compared to one of the more popular brands that comes in a convenient tube that you can pop the top back on. It's designed to fit exactly into your mouth and doesn't actually have potato in it. And scientists have worked on it to make it so addictive to people that people know the tagline. They'll, they'll know it as I'm even describing it now. How did you get away with putting the names in? Is it because what you're saying about these brands is factual and not therefore defamatory.
4: Yeah, I think that is exactly what it is. It's just sort of illustrating. I mean, they they themselves said brand. Um, you know, it's nothing new. It's it's what they've marketed their whole strategy on from the beginning. So, I, I don't think there was any issue with mentioning mentioning brand names in that way. Like I said, we're not sort of. I'm not telling you not to ever eat them. I just think that you need to think about other options and, you know, eat these foods in moderation or, you know, or cut them out if that's what you choose to do. But yeah, I don't think there was any problem with with mentioning the brand name like that in that context.
1: Yeah, I just think it further presented your point, really. And you know, it can really surprise people. We we think just because something ends up on our shelves Uh, that that's the decision made as to whether or not it goes into our, our trolley or not. We can get swayed by all kinds of things from marketing to convenience to being time poor. But being empowered with this information, I think, is really important. The book is great. Everything is laid out really clear, really simply with plenty of recipes in there to boot. It is called Unprocess Your Life. Rob Hobson, thank you very much for coming on.
4: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
1: So that's it for Alive and kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey and Hugo de Silva Scott, who was on sound. And thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and kicking with Claire McKenna, Sunday morning at eight on News Talk.